guys, this is Debbie, and welcome back to my podcast, Candle in a Dark Room. So today I have a very special guest. Her name is Brittany Piper. Brittany Piper is an international activist, speaker, and healing and wellness coach, cultivating 300 plus programs spanning nine years and three continents. Her work has been recognized by the U.S. Army, the Clinton Foundation, Cosmopolitan, Elite Daily, and more. She is also a rape survivor and leading national expert and advocate on sexual violence and prevention and recovery, speaking to tens and thousands of students, detectives, employees, inmates, and military members each year. So I really wanted Brittany Piper on today because I've followed her for a while. Her story is amazing, and she really is just the model for survivors, and I just really wanted to have her on here to share her story and just kind of how she got to where she is today. So Brittany Piper, thank you and welcome to my podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I know we've been, we've been trying to do this for what, like six, seven, eight months, something like that. Yes. <laughs> well, you were so busy touring and then when you were done touring, you, you know, you're pregnant now and then I've been busy. It's now the freaking quarantine. So yeah, it's just been kind of crazy time. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm glad that we could definitely come together. I think it's all about timing and synergy. So um, yeah, yeah, I think, I think right now now's a, a great time to connect. Yeah. Amen. Sure. Yeah. Why don't Amen. you start by telling your story and from the beginning and let us, letting us know kind of how you got to where you are today. Sure. Yeah. It's funny when people ask me to share my story, I'm like, should I start from the beginning or should, like, where do you want me to pick up? So thanks, <laughs> for, the, the thanks for the direction. Because, <laughs> yeah. I think the beginning, I mean, I think a lot of your story begins at the beginning. So I think mm-hmm. it's important to share. So yeah, absolutely. So thank you again for having me. I'm Brittany. People call me Brit, but it, it really kind of starts from the day that I was born. I always kind of take it back to, uh, to day one. So I was born September 28th, 1988 at a Grossmont Hospital in San Diego, California. And that was kind of day one of my first, I guess you could say, experience with trauma. And I know mm-hmm. that when we say trauma, people oftentimes, they kind of get like the, you know, the either the gasp, like, you know, it's such a dramatic word, or they kind of roll their eyes. And but trauma is trauma, pain is pain. And so that was kind of my my Mm. first experience. So the day that I was born, um, I was actually taken from my mother by Child Protective Services, and I was put into foster care, uh, because there was methamphetamine found in my my mom's system. Um, My mom was a young mom herself. And she was kind of dealing with her own I think, uh, hardships during, you know, during the time of her pregnancy with me and her way of kind of dealing with it and coping with it was through substance abuse, even while pregnant. So she was, I think about 19 or 20 at the time, but again, I was taken and my older brother was also taken from my mom. Uh, he was two and a half years older than me. His name is Dominic. And so we were both put into foster care. And after about three to four months or so, you know, my mom was kind of mandated, you know, if you want your children back, then you have to get your life back on track. So she really went through a lot of obstacles to, to just try and better her life. After about three to four months, uh, my grandparents, after seeing that she was really trying to get, you know, kind of back on the, the right path, they actually mm-hmm. agreed to take us in. So we were taken in by my grandparents. My mom uh, continued on, you know, that same trajectory. And so she, uh, did she live with you guys or your grandparents just took you guys? You and your they, brother? They, they took us in, but my mom lived with us as well, as well okay. as um, my, my aunt too. So, okay. you know, and my mom 
Uh, you know, she was dealing with the relationship with my biological father. My biological father, when he was, when my mom was pregnant with me, he actually left her for another woman. And so I think that was really hard for her. And he's also the, the biological father of my older brother as well. So okay. I, I think that, you know, she felt like she sacrificed a lot in her life, especially at a young age to be with him. She dropped out of school, you know, was kind of outcast by her family. I mean, she had a lot going for herself and, you know, she kind of followed him down a dark path and then he kind of left her high and dry for someone else. And so wow. she was really hurt. And, and then after I was born, he kind of decided he didn't really want to be a part of our lives. And so that was something that we had to deal with. And I don't think it really resonated with me until I was a little bit older, just the fact that I did have, you know, definitely those feelings of abandonment by my biological father. Mm -hmm. uh, my stepdad, he came along when I was about two years old, and he's just always been dad, you know, like I've, I've never known anyone else besides him. Um, actually, okay. you know, took, took his name right off the bat, and um, I'm a daddy's girl to this day, and so we're incredibly close, and so... Having oh, him there, awesome. you know, is that, yeah, and, and having that father figure in my life, um, it definitely helped me, I think, to build strong attachments, you know, healthy attachments with men instead of, you know, kind of putting myself in toxic relationships. Of course, I did here and there, but I think that actually is more stemming from another trauma that I dealt with, which I'll tell you here in a second. So yeah, um, you know, growing up, again, we were born in San Diego, and then we moved when I was pretty young to the Midwest and kind of just started life all over. You know, my mom had a great job. My stepdad was kind of, you know, staying home with the kids. Life was just kind of like, you know, life in the suburbs and it was good. <laughs> and then when I was a, when I was a freshman in high school, I was 15 at the time. Um, and Dominic, my older brother, he was a senior he was actually killed in a car accident. Wow. And that for me, like I always tell people, I feel like that was like the first tangible experience that I had with trauma. You know, I yeah, think that I mean, I when I was, imagine. yeah. And I just, you know, I mean, of, of course the stuff about foster care and what happened at, at my birth and the things about my biological father, those weren't things that were really talked about in our household until I was older. Um, mm -hmm. I remember being kind of like, you know, in an adolescent, maybe like 13, 14 years old, and just walking through the grocery store one day with my mom and my mom just kind of dropping the bomb and saying, by the way, this is what happened when you were born and you were in foster care. Like <laughs> just, just like oh, a wow. Sunday night, gro like, like grocery run. <laughs> yeah. Just so, you know, how you were born into this world. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So there just, there was a lot of stuff, you know, swept up under the rug, which um, I think a lot of it was just you know, my family's way of coping with things because there was a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and embarrassment, right. you know, tied in with those, um, you know, people would see them as mistakes that she made, but I just see it as that was her way of protecting herself. And I think right. now that I've, you know, dealt, been on her end of the spectrum, I can, I can see why she went down that path. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Um, but again, when Dominic passed away, that was like kind of the first, like, in your face, um, you can just looking at yourself in the mirror, you can see that you're like, you know, like my, my face was sunken. I mean, um, that was a profound moment in my life. And Dominic and I were incredibly close. You know, my mom yeah, I mean, was off like for many years. Apart. Yeah. And um, we were probably as close as brother and sister could get. Mm. He was, he really was my best friend. You know, growing up, my mom 
really was trying to make a name for herself. She was trying to become successful. And, you know, my stepdad kind of became like, a, not a stay at home dad, but he was the one who was um, around more often, you know, and so right. Dominic and, being, and I, you said um, life was good until all this, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So he passed away and that was really hard for me to take. And so, you know, I think that kind of following in, in the footsteps of some of the past traumas that my family had dealt with, we, it's not that we didn't face Dominic's grief or his loss head on, but I think that we probably could have approached it in a much more deeper way. You know, we did right. go see like a family counselor, but you know, my parents were, they were back at work, you know, within like a week or two. Um, oh, wow. And there was just a lot of stuff I think that was going on that just maybe wasn't being talked about. And mm -hmm. none of us had the tools to, walk with that pain, to walk with that grief. And so I resorted to doing very similarly what my mom had done is just numb my pain. You know, I was just numbing out constantly. So I started drinking really heavily. I turned into, you know, the, the party girl in high school. And that's kind of, I think, the reputation I, I left behind when I moved away. Um, yeah. But it just, it was a very tumultuous, very ugly time in our life as a family. And I think that, you know, that happened when I was about 15 and a half. I then graduated high school and I moved from the Midwest and went off to New York to pursue lacrosse. So I played a division one sport uh, in college. I got a scholarship and it was something that I was really passionate about. You know, I, I grew up playing soccer um, and mm -hmm. my, my brother always played lacrosse and he always wanted me to play lacrosse. And so after he passed away, I decided I'm going to play lacrosse. Um, and then I went on to become the first athlete out of our district to, you know, to go on and play division one. Um, wow. and so it was some, it was something that I felt like connected us, mm -hmm. but I think looking back now, so much of my life, I was just trying to grasp and, and hang on to Dominic in so many ways. And I think in some ways that really held me back from moving on, you know, into mm -hmm. my own life. You know, I just, I, I tried to carry him along with me in every way that I could. But when I moved off to college in New York, it was in Staten Island, New York. So I was in New York City and it was, of course, my first time away from home. I still was drinking very heavily. I was still a bit of a problem child, as people would say. And within my first semester at college, I didn't really tell people about Dominic and I kind of like kept it to myself because I felt like in high school, people looked at me like my pain was a burden. You know, I yeah. think, I, I think we kind of teach people how to treat us. And it's like, um, I very much so had the victim mentality. I mean, my identity was I'm the girl with the dead brother. So treat me like it. You right. know, um, yeah. and that's just, that's just how, that's the, the, the foot that I led with. And so instead of people, you know, coming up to me at school and being like, Hey, how you doing? They're like, Hey, how are you? You know? And that's just, right. people just had to walk on. Yeah. They just, they, they had to walk on eggshells around me. And, um, so I, I think that was in, in some part my doing, but also in some part other people's doing. And so when I moved to New York, I had this, you know, new team of, of, uh, you know, girls and this new community. And so, yeah, I just kept all, all my shit to myself. And, uh, mm -hmm. by October, um, I was in a hospital. So I decided one night it was a good idea to take 10 shots of vodka in about 
30 to 45 minutes. And oh the next thing I remember is just, <laughs> just waking up the next morning in a hospital bed. And wow. some of my, my teammates were there, you know, sitting around the bed, but the, the doctor was there and he said, it's a miracle. You're alive. You showed up in an ambulance with a blood alcohol content of a 0.38 and you actually oh, flatlined wow. at the wow. hospital. So, oh you know, my and gosh, just from drinking so much, your body just couldn't handle it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, when you look at, um, you know, the kind of the lethal limit for like a grown mm-hmm. man, it's usually like a 0.37. So I was above that. And, um, and mind you, everybody, like she's, you're super tiny naturally. So that, yeah, that's a lot for your little body. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it was a lot. So, you know, I, at that point, the school kind of decided, you know, you need to go home for a semester, you need to attend AA meetings, you need to get your life back on track. It was kind of like I was like living in my mom's shoes, you know, in the past, right. like you made this mistake, now get get your shit together and then we can go from there. So, so you were forced um, then to do it? Yeah. To like yeah. get out of there, okay. Exactly. I was suspended. I did have the option to go back, but I think after going back home and then starting to attend AA meetings, being around family, at that point, mm-hmm. they had moved from Cincinnati to Indianapolis. They waited until after I graduated high school to move. And so I moved home, but home was, of course, still in the Midwest, but it was an entirely different city. And so I had mm-hmm. to make new friends. I had to, you know, build new communities. And But I was okay with that. So um, after some time at home, I decided, you know what? I don't think it's a good idea for me to go back to New York City. <laughs> You know, like, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to be sober. I'm trying to, to, you know, put, put my best foot forward. And so that continued on for a while. I started working in Indiana um, at a restaurant. I was making friends. And anyone who works, you know, in the hospitality industry, there's a lot of drinking that goes on. And so I started right. drinking again, you know, just fell back into those those patterns of wanting to, to numb because, you know, and a lot of the work that I do now as a healing coach is I talk a lot about just symptom repair, symptom substitution, you know, right. we're just managing symptoms by just not drinking, but we're not getting down to the root cause. And so mm-hmm. I never did the deeper work of like going to see a therapist. I was just going to AA meetings and that, that for me, for some people that's, it's sustainable, but for me, it just, it wasn't enough. So Right. Started started drinking again. Um, nothing too crazy though. It was actually I was pretty responsible. Um, and then after um it was a little over a year of being in Indiana, I was out one night with friends. We were drinking, dancing, having fun, and at the end of the night I had realized that I left my phone in a friend's purse. And so okay. at about, I don't know, one or two in the morning, I decided to leave my home to go get my phone from her. Um, you know, when you're 20 years old, you don't want to be without your phone. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so I, I ventured out and to retrieve my phone. And on the way, I ended up hitting a pothole on the highway. Um, and, or I, I, I hit something on the highway, but I ended up with a flat tire. So I pulled off on the next exit, which wasn't in the greatest of areas. And I pulled into the closest gas station that I could find. Um, and there was a man there who offered to help me change my tire. And of course, you know, I received and and accepted his help because I was without a phone. I didn't know where I was. I still was getting used to, you know, the the lay of the land in Indianapolis. And so I was a bit lost. Mm -hmm. Um, So he helped me. And then as a way of saying thank you, I offered him money repeatedly. And he kept just insisting that uh, I give him a ride home. 
And so after some time, I reluctantly let him into my car. We start to drive to, you know, wherever his supposed home is. And, um, you know, essentially what took place after that is that I was brutally raped and beaten. And then he, he let me go on my way. Now, I always tell people, you know, just to give some context and, um, you know, I don't ever go into details of my assault because I know that can be very re-traumatizing for other people. Um, Mm -hmm. But the assault happened. He, you know, opened my glove box. He was telling me to give him, you know, my money, wallet, all of those things. He then told me to, you know, to pop the trunk and to get out of the car um, and to lay in the grass and to put my my face in the grass. And at that point, um, I heard him kind of rattling around in the trunk and I could hear the the, the metal. And I'm like, the only metal thing in the back of my car is the tire iron. Um, and there was uh, like the lock, the wheel lock thing. And so at that point, I just remember kind of, you know, begging and pleading, don't kill me. And a lot of my, my reasoning for that was, you know, don't take another child from my parents. And I think that that is the only reason why he didn't kill me. I think he had every intention of killing me that night. So he, he didn't kill me, but he, he beat me very, very badly. Um, With that tire iron? Yes. And I was a, you know, bloodied mess. When I was at the the hospital, I had um, a bit of a neck injury, bruising, lacerations, and then there was cartilage torn in my jaw. And so, you know, I mean, you, you could tell just by looking at me, if any stranger walked by, like that something horrible just happened. So he let me back into my car and then he gave me directions to go home, which I'm like, oh, so nice of you. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> like, let me go on my way. And so I drove back to um, where I was living. I was actually living with my AA sponsor at the time, who was nine years older than me. And my best friend who was out with me that night, she was sleeping on the couch and I woke her up, you know, screaming and crying and just saying, you know, I I was raped. I was raped. And her response to me was, despite the fact that, again, physically just looking at me, you you know that something happened. Her response to me was go to bed, sleep it off. We'll talk in the morning. Um, Oh my gosh. And so I carried myself upstairs, put myself into bed and my roommate slash sponsor, um, she heard me crying. And so she came across the hallway. She looked at me and she didn't even have to like ask the question. She didn't have to analyze or try and figure out like what the hell just happened. She just kind of like jumped right into like ally mode, you know, like Mm -hmm. empty mode. And she picked me up and she carried me downstairs and she put me into her car. She drove me to the hospital and she called my parents on the way. And I always tell people that, you know, if it weren't for her, I actually don't know that I ever would have reported what had happened to me because. Because mm-hmm. your friend um, just brushed it off. Like it was no big deal. Yeah, it, well, it, exactly. Well, that mixed with the fact that, you know, I didn't even drive myself to the hospital. I drove myself right. home because I'm thinking in, in my mind, I'm underage um, and I'm drinking and I was drinking tonight and right. no one knows that I'm drinking. Everyone thinks I'm an AA. And mm. also I let this man into my car. What did I expect? You know, all, just all of those things that I think, um, right. survivors of abuse or just in general, I think that we're kind of ingrained to believe is that it's inherently our fault, despite the fact that it w- this was a black and white, like this man just brutally raped and beat you. Right. Still, and you weren't drunk at the time. I mean, you were, no. you were sober. So, right. And it, it did not and, like that matters. But my point is, is that you were just at a gas station fixing your tire. 
Exactly. Yep. I mean, this is, you know, like the quintessential, like if we were to put this into a Hollywood story, this is what sexual assault looks like. And I was going to say it's like a lifetime. It's rare. Yeah, exactly. My my case is very, very rare. 70% of, you know, sexual assault or sexual violence um, occurrences happen between people that already know one another, Uh, whether it's intimate, intimate partner violence, whether it's uh, date rape, family members, exactly. So my case is incredibly rare. It's rarely ever a stranger down a dark alley. And, but even still like that story that they, you know, kind of like imprint into your brains, like this is what rape looks like. Even in my Mm -hmm. mind, I'm like, but it's still my fault. So that was hard. And then, you know, I always say that, you know, sexual violence and sexual assault, rape, however you want to refer to it, that it is absolutely the most terrible thing that anyone can go through, but that I I actually think that the aftermath is even harder, you know? Um, Yeah, that's why I say too. Yeah, it's, that is the hardest part. And so learning to live um, your life, you know, exactly. Yeah. And so I was in the hospital for a little bit, went home, but at that point they still had not caught him. They had his, obviously his DNA from the, you know, the rape kit that they did, the testing, they had his fingerprints all over my car. He had been in and out of the system his entire life. So they knew who he was, Mm. but they just hadn't caught him yet. And at that point I was becoming uncomfortable because he had my ID with my address on it and oh, yeah. the news stations were were starting to show up at my house um, because my address and information had been leaked during a press conference. Um, I was so going to ask, just, how I did that get leaked? Most of the time, um, you know, assaults happen and they don't they don't end up on the news. So how did that end up yeah. on the news? So it did end up on the news. I was still listed as anonymous, okay. but the news anchors showing up at my house, they never should have had access to my address or my information. Mm. Apparently there was an intern working <laughs> and he accidentally put my, he didn't white out my information. And so all of the news stations got my information. Um, So they started showing up, knocking on the doors. My parents were really concerned. I was concerned. um, You know, I was having panic attacks in Mm -hmm. the bathtub um, thinking he's, he's coming for me. And so they sent me off to, to Seattle to stay with my aunt. And I remember them telling me, you know, don't get on the internet, take time to just be by yourself. And of course, when your parents tell you not to do something, you do the opposite. Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I went online and I started looking at some of the articles about my case. And of course, the police officers, the first responders, they made comments like, uh, such as, you know, this, this rape holds lessons. She really should have trusted her better instincts. She shouldn't have let him into her car. Um, and I, I internalized that and the community resonated with that. Um, and they made comments too on these articles, you know, online and they say things like, didn't her mother teach her not to talk to strangers? Um, and so that just kind of, Exactly. So I just kind of fell back into those patterns again of just wanting to, to, to get away from it all. But at the same time, he was, they, they did find him. And I was, it's kind of like I was living two lives. It's like I was, on one hand, I felt like I had an obligation to help bring this man to justice, you know, to put mm-hmm. him away forever, for like forever. And then Mm -hmm. on the other hand, I'm like, I was really struggling behind the scenes. And so the case went on for two years in Indiana um, because he had been in and out of the prison system his entire life. He 
really knew how to work the system. And so mm -hmm. our case was postponed or continued nine times. Um, and each time a, a, a trial is postponed, that means that whoever the witnesses are, whoever's getting up on the, the stand, they have to come in and go through depositions again, listen to tape statements, practice being on the witness stand. So that meant nine times I had oh to go in and relive, you know, every graphic detail of that night, which I always mm. tell people it was kind of, I mean, of course it was, excuse me, incredibly re-traumatizing and I think that that's mm -hmm. kind of where our, our systems fail survivors and that's yeah. why case attrition is is so so high and case attrition is where a report will initially happen but because our system is set up so much to re-victimize the survivor throughout the process they eventually give up because it's just too much for them to take right um, and that's why perpetrators kind of you know then walk scotch-free so mm -hmm. In some ways, it was, of course, re-traumatizing, and that just further perpetuated my need to drink, my need to numb out, to be in a toxic relationship. Um, I was self-harming at the time. That's when my um, eating disorder started. That's kind of when everything just spiraled out of control. Mm -hmm. But then the, the trial happened, um, and ultimately, he ended up being sentenced to 60 years behind bars, and... I remember wow. the, the news anchors, you know, doing a, a feature on the trial. And whenever I get up and kind of share my story, I always like to do it through the perspective of this, this news video. I like to show the video to the audience without telling them that it's about me. Right. Um, just, just to kind of get their perspective. But in the news video, they refer to me as the survivor who refused to be broken. Uh, again, they didn't share my name. Um, mm -hmm. And then they talked, you know, there's one news anchor who says 20 years of covering court trials. I don't think we've ever seen a rape victim who was this strong, this composed, uh, this brave, who was able to look her right. rapist in the eye and say, you did this and you're going to pay. And right. Which, yeah, I mean, I've seen, I've seen the video myself and it is like, it's right. very moving, but your perspective of it. Yes, but my perspective of it is um, it kind of sets the, the precedent that that's what survivorship has to look like. Mm -hmm. And what people don't understand is that behind the scenes, I was really struggling, you know? So sure, mm -hmm. I, I, I was showing up and I was like, you're going to jail for the rest of your life. But also behind this mask and this public persona, I am an alcoholic. I am violent. I am terrified of the world. I am suffering from mm -hmm. depression and suicidality and eating disorders, but I kept it to myself. And so less right. than six months after the trial came to an end, I was out with a friend one night who was drinking and driving. And I always say that should give people a good indication of like where I was at in my life at the time. The fact that I'm driving around with someone who's drinking and driving. Um, right. That, that friend gets pulled over, arrested for a DUI. And then as the police officers go to just physically pull me out of the car because they were going to give me a ride home, they were actually just trying to be helpful. In my drunken mind, I had a flashback from the night of my assault and I lost it. And I ended oh, up wow. in jail with, um, I had two counts of battery on an officer with injury, one count of intimidation oh and one count of um, resisting arrest. And which again, was... this is a huge reason why you advocate and, uh, you know, same with one of, the, one of the things I do is, you know, talk to the cops because this is why it's so important for cops and detectives and things like that to be trauma informed. 
because if they would have talked to you and, you know, first or whatever, then you probably wouldn't have reacted that way. Exactly. So that was kind of the turning point for everything. And of course, you know, um, even to this day, I mean, so far removed from everything that happened, that was back in 2012 ish, 2011, Mm -hmm. 2012, when that happened, you know, we're now however many years later, yes, I'm, I'm on the other side of my pain in some ways, but it's, it's never gone. You know, right. every day has, it still has its, its struggles and I'm by no means perfect and I, I never will be, but that, mm-hmm. that was really the, the turning point for me. People always refer to like their breakdown and then breakthrough moment as like, you know, their rock bottom. And I'm always like, well, mine was a concrete bottom. It was a literal jail cell. <laughs> so that night, um, but it that was, when you finally decided like, I'm done with this life or kind of what was going through your mind? Yes. So it was actually the, the judge. So I remember calling my parents first um, and my dad just saying, um, his response on the phone was, we're not bailing you out. And if you don't learn how to stop running from your pain, you are literally going to kill yourself. And he was mm-hmm. right. Um, so I was um, in jail for about two and a half, three days. Mm-hmm. And during that time, it was like, that was kind of, I always say that was like the first time, like in that six by eight jail cell that like I had to sit with my pain and there was nothing that I could rely on to help me ignore it. You know, like there was no alcohol, there was no, yeah, exactly. And so those, those few days were very profound for me. And I think that we kind of all have this fear that like sitting with our pain, sitting with our anger, our grief, our terror, that it's, it's going to kill us. And that's Mm -hmm. what our, our our nervous systems, of course, lead us to, to believe like we are either going to live or we are going to die. And so we would literally do anything to keep ourselves from experiencing those feelings again. But as I went through and I processed those emotions, um, and I came out and I was like, okay, I'm still sitting here. I'm still alive. I'm still eating this bologna sandwich out of a paper bag and I'm okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. I was like, it is going to be okay, but it was actually the judge. Um, So after those two or three days, I went before the judge and she said, I know who you are. You're the, you're the survivor from that sexual assault case. And I acknowledged that that was true. And she said, we're going to drop Mm -hmm. the charges, but you need to learn to live with your pain better. And that wow. was kind of like the aha moment because she didn't that say was you like need so to learn profound, to get, just something yeah, small. yeah, like you don't need to learn to get over your pain or get past your pain. You need to learn to live with your pain. Yeah. And so, you know, walking out of that jail cell, I felt like I just had a lot of clarity. I was like, this yeah. is now a part of my story. I can either learn to accept this pain and try and find ways to allow it to make me better or... I can keep running from this pain and allow it to make me bitter and angry and resentful. Um, And I also came to the realization, you know, when I was in that prison cell that, or not that prison cell, in that jail cell that I was behind bars at the same time as my rapist. And that was kind of mind blowing to me, you know, just to put Mm -hmm. myself on like the same playing field as him. And during the trial, um, they did talk about the fact that he was orphaned at the age of two. He was raised by an Mm. aunt as one of 10 kids. Um, I believe he had poor schooling, mental health issues, physical health issues. I mean, he was dealt a very bad hand and he, he was homeless. Um, I didn't Mm. realize it at the time, but when the assault happened, he was actually homeless. He was out on parole for only two months when it happened. Um, 
And so, you know, I started to compare my life to his and I was like, you know, we both were belt, were, were dealt a really shitty hand, but we were offered yeah. the same choice. You either allow this pain to make you better you make, or it makes you bitter. And I saw yep. that he had absolutely passed on his pain and his struggles and his hurt and his suffering onto me. And mm-hmm. there is that saying that hurt people hurt people. And I, I talk a lot about forgiveness when I talk to audiences. And, you know, when people hear me talk about him from a more compassionate place, I don't say these things to excuse what he has done but I say it as a way to explain what he has done because I, I really could be looked at in the same way, you know? Like, right, because you decided to make another choice than him. You guys yeah. both came up very similar, but the difference is exactly. you could have went down the same path he did, but you chose not to. Exactly. And so that for me, I'm like, you know, was he ever offered another chance? Does he know right. that he could be a different person? And so over the past few years, it's something that I've kind of been considering is reaching out to him. Um, you know, and now yeah. that I'm a healing and, and wellness coach, so I, well, I'll, I'll kind of just fast forward. I switched my degree to photojournalism and women's studies, and I started working as a photographer and storyteller for rape crisis and trauma centers in conflict countries. So I did that uh-huh. for a, a number of years overseas. I, I always loved writing. I loved telling stories, but I also, I loved photography. So that's kind of where the the journalism degree came in. And then the women's studies degree, you know, I think that after my trial came to an end and I, as I started to talk more openly about my story, because my sex crimes detective for my case and the um, sane nurse, the sexual assault nurse examiner, the two of them used to go around and talk around Indiana about sexual assault prevention. And after my case and they saw, you know, she's maybe she can share her story with us. Um, I started speaking publicly with them. Um, they were kind of like my, you know, my, my safe haven. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I realized that as I started sharing my story more, there were so many survivors that would reach out to me afterwards and say, I experienced X, Y, and Z. And it was, it was always the same root of like, you know, power and control and domination. And um, I just became really interested in learning more about why this was such a pervasive issue in our culture. And so mm-hmm. that's why I, you know, went into the whole women's studies path. Yeah. And, um, and then as I, after I graduated, um, some of my professors had referred me to some organizations that were working overseas and they said, you know, you could marry both of your skills, both as, you know, a researcher within the women's space and a photojournalist. And so, um, you know, I apply work for different organizations, nonprofits, and that's kind of how it started. Hey guys, so quick break. So if you came to my podcast launch back in August, you saw one of the vendor booths from the lovely ladies from Clone Apparel. The founder, Alex, was actually a guest on episode 10 darkness before dawn which was about suicide prevention they specialize in apparel for every booty men and women i can literally go from recording this podcast to the gym to picking up the kids from school and never have to worry about them moving scrunching and showing my booty they are squat proof moisture wicking and did i mention super affordable i'm talking nothing over 40 dollars. you can find them on facebook or on instagram at clone apparel That's K-L-O-N apparel. And the link to their website is in the bio. If you use my discount code, 
candle in a dark room, one word, you will get 20% off. So make sure you check them out because I know you'll be obsessed too. And so I worked in South Africa for a few months. I worked in India for a few months. I worked in Uganda and I did that for a while, um, just traveling. And then I realized that I never really took the time to deal with my own pain. Okay. You know, I kind of just, just jumped like right into purpose and I was taking on a lot of secondary trauma and then I was starting to drink again. And so again, it was like always this pattern. Just the cycle <laughs> just kept coming back. Yeah. Yeah. Just the, the, the cycle. So I decided to come home and to just really focus on myself and my own healing. I did that for a while and then I started talking publicly on my own. I then really got... Um, I dove into the, the, the healing work, but also helping others, other people. Um, and I just felt like the more that I learned about like the neurobiology of trauma and what happens somatically and, you know, how it just morphs you and changes you from a physiological level, from a hormonal level, from a relational mm-hmm. level. And I realized that no one was having these conversations. I was like, I need to share this with everyone. I think we right. all get to like a, a point where we have like an like our own awakening or enlightenment about mm-hmm. our stories. And then we're like, holy shit, why does no one know this? Everyone needs yeah. to know this. <laughs> no, I totally agree. Um, just today on my live, somebody asked me that and they're like, why did you just, I'm like, honestly, like what was your turning point? I'm like, honestly, I just remember sitting there and being like, Hey, no, like I went through this for a reason. And mm-hmm. so I need to find my purpose in my trauma and I need to figure out what that is. And I'm going to, I'm going to do it. You know? And like you said, I, when yep. you go through trauma, you have to, that's when you kind of have to choose if you're going to use it for something good or if you're just going to kind of let it take over you. And I think that, yeah, mm-hmm. I think like you said, everybody kind of goes through something like that, some type of awakening. Yeah. And I, I also realized too that, you know, I realized that there were so many layers of trauma. You know, I think that people yep. often will hear like my story or maybe like, you know, your story or um, some other story that they would deem as super traumatic, right? And then they compare Mm -hmm. their trauma to ours. Um, And that always, it makes me so sad because a lot of the the people that I would see in, you know, these trauma centers, they experience what we call acute or little t trauma, things like neglect, things like abandonment. But you can see Mm -hmm. that the behaviors that they are modeling or their way of surviving or their coping mechanisms are just as severe, if not sometimes more severe than someone who's experienced a brutal beating or a sexual assault, right? And so I I think that that made me realize that pain is pain, trauma is trauma. We all carry it just in different ways based on our environments, our circumstances, our mainly based on our upbringing, right? Um, And so I just, I became so, so fascinated with it. So yeah. um, And that's kind of where I'm at today. So today I'm a professional speaker. So I'd say that 75% of the work that I do is um, I go around the country um, and I talk to, I'd say most of my audience is college students. I talk to college students about sexual assault prevention, response, and recovery. But in addition to that, uh, I also talk with the U.S. military. Um, I work with the SHARP program, which is the sexual has, sexual assault, sorry, sexual <laughs> harassment assault um, response prevention program, and it's an initiative that okay. they have for soldiers and civilians on military bases. 
Um, so I work with resilience and the shark programs, both home and abroad. And then I work with sex crimes detectives. So with sex crimes detectives, I teach them about empathetic response <laughs> when it comes okay. to sexual assault. And then I also teach them about the neurobiology of trauma. So for instance, okay. you know, if I go and speak at a sex crimes conference, a lot of sex crimes detectives don't understand that, you know, if a survivor enters into a state of fight, flight, or freeze, but mainly freeze. 70% right. of uh, survivors of, of sexual assault enter into freeze mode, which is where their nervous system goes down essentially into the state called the dorsal response. And this is where they mm -hmm. completely freeze up. It's also called tonic immobility. So they won't fight back. They won't say no. And their brain mm -hmm. becomes completely overwhelmed by cortisol. And it's almost like they black out. And that's just really their, their body's kind of beautiful way of, of protecting itself, you know, because mm -hmm. it doesn't want to hold on to those traumatic memories. And that's why a lot of survivors of trauma will have flashbacks, you know, like they won't remember the entire experience. They'll just remember right. fragments. And those fragments come through the form of sensory perception. So either a smell or a touch or a sound mm -hmm. or a taste it's remembered within the body, but it's not stored within the brain. And so something that happens within our body will trigger that response in our brain. And that's where we have flashbacks and flooding. And so, okay. Um, but the, the fact that a lot of sex crimes detectives don't know this, you know, the, I, I think that the best example you can look at is like with the, the whole Kavanaugh case. And when people were saying things like, you know, that, that doctor, you know, well, she doesn't remember everything that happened. Well, there's a lot of holes in her story. Well, it doesn't, her timeline doesn't add up. And for me, it's like, that's just more proof that sexual assault or some type of trauma actually occurred. Occurred. Because right. she, she entered into a state of freeze. And so mm -hmm. I've taken a lot of, you know, the, the healing work that I do, and I blend that with the sexual assault work in the work that I do with sex crimes detectives. And then wow. lastly, I work one-on-one -on -one with clients. It's a three-month program where Again, we don't just focus on the addictions. We don't just fo focus on the alcohol abuse or the toxic relationships or the busyness or just everything that we see on the outside that we're constantly trying to throw Band-Aids on. Instead, we get down to the root cause of what's going on in their life. And so it's called mm -hmm. the functional breakthrough method. And so they focus on the root cause rather than the mm -hmm. allopathic or just what we see on the outside. Um, so we get down to the root cause and we really rewire a lot of those beliefs, the emotions, the thoughts that we have um, about life that are holding us back. And so it's like half part therapy, half part life coaching. That's some of the, some of my, my favorite work that I do. And then I also have like group programming as well for like, you know, self-care and, and wellness and things mm -hmm. like that. So, oh, so that, yeah, that is awesome. my entire story. Yeah. I oh, just that's talked great. for well, like when you three were, minutes. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think that's great. You have a big story. You have a very long, big story. And I think it, you know, all of it needs to be shared and talked about. And just now when you're talking about the whole freeze thing. So when I was younger and I went to rehab after I reported my abuse, mm -hmm. I actually was diagnosed with disassociation disorder. I don't know if you know much about my story, but I was sexually abused from age eight to 15. Mm -hmm. So for years and years and years, I went through sexual abuse. I mean, you name it, it happened. Um, physical, mental, you know, all those things happened along with it. And when I went to rehab when I was 15, 
I didn't remember. I told the judge and everybody when we went to court when he was sentenced that I thought it started when I was 10 and I couldn't remember. I could not remember when it started. I didn't remember the first time. I didn't remember any of that. And um, I didn't know until I was in rehab and started disassociating. So what would happen was I would go back into a, a memory and I would reenact my abuse as if, as if yes. he was holding me down on the floor. I would like stop breathing because in my head he was suffocating me, um, you know, things like that. I would completely reenact the abuse. And so that's the only reason why at one point they started asking me, how old are you? And I figured out that it started when I was eight. So a lot of my stuff didn't come out until later because I, my freeze mechanism would happen. Mm-hmm. And it would block out so I could survive. I mean, I had to hide it from my mom. I had to hide it from my whole family. You know, he threatened to to hurt me if I told anyone. So, of course, I had a mask on. And Mm -hmm. so, for so long, that was my only survival mechanism was to let it happen. I had to just go back to normal life. So, yeah. So, I think it's like when, you know, you talked about that. And I just think that's really cool how you explained it in the brain. Because I definitely think that's what my brain did for me to survive. Yeah. Well, and especially, too. And I'm, of course incredibly empathetic um, with what, what you went through. And I'm sorry to hear that that's, you know, a, a part of your story. I've, I've heard part of your story, so I know that. But I, of course, just want to acknowledge that. Thank you. you. Know, I'm sorry that that's, that's part of your experience. But, you know, I, I especially think, too, that because what happens in the developmental years, like we don't, so like when you talk about the brain, for instance, you know, you kind of have you know, when you look at your limbic system at the front of your brain, you have the prefrontal cortex. And that's like, that's essentially where your, your foreheads. And I've, I've heard some people say it before, and I think it's the best way of saying it is that like, this is the parent in the room, right? So like, this is where mm-hmm. like executive function is. Um, this is where logic and reasoning lies. And then in the back lower part of the brain is where the amygdala is. And this is your brain's fear response center. So all of those Um, messages that we get from our our nervous system that we are not safe, that there is danger, that there is a threat, that's what activates our amygdala or the the fear response center. But especially when you're younger, you are only living from your emotions, right? So because you're still trying to make sense of the world. And so they they say that the prefrontal cortex isn't exactly um, really fully formed and mature until you're 14 years old. And so oh, okay. when you look at the, the studies like the adverse childhood experiences studies, you can see that people who experience adversity under the age of 18, they have much, much, much higher rates of, you know, suicidality, alcoholism, depression, um, mm-hmm. you know, all of these different things. And that's because um, they are living from their amygdala. Um, and so okay. that completely makes sense. But you, you kind of get stuck in your amygdala and you enter this state called neuroception where your body and your brain becomes a threat detecting machine. And so even though, you know, you might know logically that so-and-so is a safe person and they've never done anything to you because you're mm-hmm. living from a place of fear consistently, no matter what evidence you have that that person is a safe haven for you, you're still going to believe that that person is out to get you. You know, like that's just the, oh, the easiest okay. example I can give. Um, but we, we live in a, in a constant sense. state of fear, but yeah, dissociation is where we become completely dissociated from our prefrontal cortex. And we're just yeah. living within our nervous system and we're, we're stuck in, in a state of survival. And so 
my assumption would be that maybe some of the, the work that you did um, or that you still do, and a lot of the work that I do myself in my own healing is uh, centered around emotional regulation. And so that's Absolutely, just regulating yeah. my emotions, bringing myself back down to calm, reminding mm-hmm. myself that I am, that I am safe, that the experience yes. is over. And when you do that, I mean, that's just, that's essentially where your nervous system lives. And people don't realize that our, our nervous system is all about our emotions. You know, that's how we tap mm-hmm. into it. When we, when we say things like, I feel scared, I feel angry, I feel terrified, we're not saying I think scared, I think angry, you know, those are all right. sensations that we have within our body. And so if we can start bringing more awareness to the emotions that we're carrying around every day, number one, and then number two, if we can start cultivating more loving, supportive, giving, purposeful, fulfilling emotions within our life, you know, that are tied around joy and peace those can start to take over and it can make room for more abundance in our life, you know, and more safety. A a lot of people say there's like, you know, fight, flight, or freeze. And I, and then they say, and there's rest and digest, but I like to refer to it as rest and repair because when we're in a state of survival, our body and our brains cannot heal at all. Mm -hmm. Everything, all of our, our resources are tied to protecting us from something that's no longer happening. And so that's why people who experience trauma, they have higher rates of cardiovascular disease, they have higher rates of cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these ailments, these diseases, it's because our immune systems, our hormones, our mood, our clarity, our thoughts, everything is affected. And you see that when people start to get get a hold of their emotions and regulate their nervous systems, their entire lives change, physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. And it's just it's so fascinating to me. I just, I could talk about it for hours. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, like you're saying with the body. So I did, if you ever have the chance, listen to an episode, I interviewed this man, his name is Dr. Beal, and he is the director at a trauma center here in Utah, one of the top um, trauma centers. And he talks about Mm -hmm. exactly what you're talking about, because we talked about my disassociation and I told him, so when I was 15, right after I reported my stepfather and um, the court system and all that finished, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes. And mm. randomly, like first person in my family, all of a sudden I had type one diabetes. Nobody knew my story. Nobody knew what I was going through every day. I was hiding it for so many years that I think my body internalized it and started coming out in, you know, other ways. And um, my dad mm-hmm. just passed away from stage four stomach cancer. Well, my dad, mm. it was random. He, nobody in my family had cancer. You know, he died in February. And all of a sudden he got diagnosed. Well, my dad was abused for so many years and he never dealt with it. He grew up and became a detective, sex crimes detective, ended up becoming a, mm-hmm. you know, a cop, did all this stuff, held all this trauma in, saw more trauma in being a detective and police officer. Secondary and then trauma. retired. Yep. Exactly. And then he retired and two years later he was diagnosed with cancer and he just passed away. So I a hundred percent believe like all of that. Cause I have a lot of people ask me those questions. Like, do you believe it affects your body? And just yes. from my own personal experience, I absolutely think that that's, that's real, you know? That's the, I mean, that is a um, testament right, right there to the fact that it is, you know, and I, I think a lot of people look at it as like, oh, well, that's just science, you know, but they can't see it play out in their own lives. But if you see it in someone else's life, you know, that, that story in, 
impacts right. you. It, it, it affects you for sure. Right. And that Dr. But, Bill said that he like has seen young people who all of a sudden they're, you know, they're raped or something happens and they're traumatized. All of a sudden they have like their liver start shutting down and all these weird things yep. start happening. Mm-hmm. And he's like, it's because they are, they're internalizing it and holding everything in right in the middle of their body. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, I have a couple of questions for you before we finish up. One question sure. is, so you said you talked about forgiveness. Can you give me a little bit about how you've dealt with the anger towards him and how you have truly forgiven him? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I started to talk about that and then I never finished. I got off, I went off on a tangent, which <laughs> no, you're fine. kind of, kind of how I operate. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. So for, so I would say that the whole forgiveness aspect, you know, and whenever I talk to, you know, there's, so there's kind of like different talks that I give, you know, one talks about sexual assault. Another one is about healing. Another one is about, you know, overcoming adversity and kind of in those healing and adversity talks, forgiveness is always what I talk about in the last five minutes. And I feel like that's actually kind of representative of the fact that forgiveness was one of the last steps that I I really had to take in my healing journey. And again, Mm -hmm. the healing journey is a a lifelong journey. It is not a single destination. I will be healing for the rest of my life. Um, But that came much later on in the process. So for me, I... I realized that I was still living with a lot of anger and a lot of resentment towards him. Mm -hmm. But again, as I started to learn more about just why I am the way that I am, why I made the decisions that I made, why I was, you know, this, this reckless, violent, awful friend and daughter. And I realized that it was normal because that's what was happening within my body and within my belief system. And it was just my way of trying to protect myself. Mm. When I had kind of that enlightenment, I was able to offer myself a lot of compassion and a lot of grace rather than looking in the mirror and saying, I hate you. You're an awful person. And so actually my own journey with like self-love and forgiveness for myself started to extend out to other people. And I think that was just because, you know, I just, I I had a lot of compassion for myself and it kind of overflowed to other people. But I think Mm -hmm. that as I, as I kind of went down that path and I realized that again, he had been through some things in his life and I just, I don't know, there was something in me spiritually that just wanted to reach out. It was something that I prayed over for a number of years, something I talked to my pastor about, something I talked to my my husband about. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. until this past year that I decided to really like commit to it and do it. So I wrote a letter to him. And actually I, in the mix of moving from Rhode Island to Texas a couple of months ago, and that just happening Mm -hmm. out of nowhere, I wasn't able to send a letter to him. So I still have the letter, but I'm going to send it to him. And I want to start the process. Um, You know, I spoke with the prosecuting attorney for my case and the sex crimes detective, but we're in the process now of discussing restorative justice. So restorative restorative justice is where they bring together perpetrators and victims of a crime for reconciliation. And sex crimes detective, the prosecutor, my family, everyone is very much against this because he was not in the least bit remorseful during the case. He has shown no signs of wanting to you know, get out of jail early. He hasn't shown any signs since he's been in for the past 10 years of bettering himself, um, you know, doing any of the classes or anything like that. But, you know, I tell people, I don't think that the forgiveness is, is so much for him as it is for me. And just kind of mm-hmm. closing that, right. that chapter and, and moving forward. But I always talk about 
Nelson Mandela as an example, you know, and just the fact mm -hmm. that he was imprisoned and tortured for 27 years. And, you know, when I think when people talk about forgiveness, he's kind of like, at least for me, he was the, the first face that kind of came to mind. And mm -hmm. there's a quote that he says, you know, when he was freed from prison and he said, as I walked towards the doors to my freedom, I realized that if I didn't leave the anger, the bitterness and the hatred behind that I would still be in that prison cell. And I remember reading that right. and being like, holy shit, that speaks to my heart. And I just said that today. I couldn't heal myself until I let go of that anger. And that exactly. for holding on to that anger towards him for so many years is why I was in that victim mentality for so many mm -hmm. years. So once I was able to finally forgive and let go of that anger, doesn't mean I, I you know, forget, doesn't mean any of that, but I was able to forgive and let it go. And I was able, that would open the doors to my healing process. Um, absolutely. And I'm, I'm so glad that you reached that point, you know, because it's, it's hard for a lot of people to get there mm -hmm. because I think that people look at it as like, you know, an act of kindness that they're doing to the other person, but it's more so an act of kindness that you're offering yourself by saying, right. this person may never say, sorry, this person will never be able to write what they did wrong, but mm -hmm. you don't have to live with this anguish and this anger and this resentment for the rest of your life. Like you can let it go now. Yeah. And exactly. so for me, that's just, that's kind of the process I'm, that I want to take. It's the process I'm going down and what know, was last that year. Restorative justice? Yeah. It's called um, restorative justice. There's only a couple of okay. states in the United States that, that offer that yeah i've never uh, heard of that I, that's interesting yeah I th and i think there's only there's like less than 20 cases of restorative justice when the, within the u.s but you know you, you hear those stories of like you know van jones on cnn uh last year he had a four-part series on restorative justice i think it was called the compassion project and mm -hmm. it was different stories of people who were horribly wronged um you know there was one man who went and forgave the person who murdered his daughter you know, just really, really intense stuff. But you can see just these people come back into life with a much different perspective. You know, they just on 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 both sides. And so, for me, uh, within the past year, I I was trying to work with the Rhode Island Department of Corrections, and of course, we moved. But working with them to work with uh, prison inmates on healing and recovery and reconciliation them themselves, because. You know, the statistics out there are that 92% of our incarcerated populations have faced um, trauma or adversity, especially yeah. in, in childhood. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I just don't know that they've ever really been given the opportunity to make a different choice. Right. And so yep, exactly. I think that well, these I cycles will continue. You want to do that. Thank you. Yeah. So I just, I don't know. I, I, I have a baby on the way and it was something I wanted to do before my son was brought into the world. I don't know that we'll get there with this whole pandemic going on, but um, yeah, that's, that's something that's definitely on, on my radar. Well, I think that's amazing. And I mean, that just is another example of how strong you are and how much, how far you've come. And I just, commend you for that I think that's just so big and brave because honestly like as much healing as I did I don't know if I could ever like write a letter and send that to him like I just don't know if I could do that and if I maybe one day I I could but as of right now I just think that that's amazing that you're in that place well and but also know too Sorry, like that, that that's entirely that's entirely okay if if you never want to right like that's right I, I think that everyone's journey looks different and so even when we mm -hmm. talk about forgiveness it's like my journey to forgiveness doesn't have to look like yours. And 
Um, I always tell exactly. people too, like there, there's a time and a place when it comes to forgiveness. Like if someone just experienced mm-hmm. sexual assault, you can't tell them the next day when they're like confiding in you, like everything happens for a reason. Maybe, you know, you'll get over this one day and maybe you can forgive right. them like in like a month from now. No, like yeah. it is, it's taken me, <laughs> years um, and years. you know, yeah, yeah nearly a, a, nearly a decade to get to this place. And so it's, yeah. it's a process that takes time if you ever even get there. And there's not, no one's saying that you have to, you know? Right. No, I, I agree. I think everybody's, like you said, everybody's journey is different. Um, last thing I was going to ask really quick, cause I think this is important for people to know is how do you deal with your triggers today? Like when you're triggered from your assault, what do you do? So, you know, it's, it's interesting because it kind of has evolved over time. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of my, what I used to do to address my triggers, like, you know, 10 years ago looks different to like what I do now. Um, so I'll just kind of tell you kind of what I do now. So if I have triggers okay. these days, first of all, I have, for me, I have found, and for a, a lot of people, and there's a lot of science behind this, but I won't go into that as well. Um, but there's something <laughs> called co-regulation. So when I talk about like regulating your emotions or your nervous system, it's bringing yourself back down to a place of safety, right? Instead of like, uh-huh. I'm terrified because there's a threat happening. And when right. a trigger happens, that's, that's essentially all that's happening is your body is telling you there's a threat. And even though it was something that happened in the past, it is looking at that threat as something that's currently happening in your present day. So mm-hmm. For me, first of all, what I do is I focus on the trigger instead of running from it. So I will acknowledge the trigger and I will ask myself, is this my current reality or is this an old script playing on repeat? And um, I, I guess another basic, simple way of saying that is like, where is the evidence that this is real? Where is the evidence that this is happening right now? And, um, I think if you get in your mind about it and you kind of logically talk yourself through it, which we call mind mapping, you can help to calm your nervous system and your body down because it's, it's essentially just your body in control, right? So Mm -hmm. your, your body doesn't have a way of interpreting threat. It just has an on and off switch. So, Mm -hmm. um, by explaining to yourself, like, is this real? Where is the evidence? And then being like, okay, Maybe this is not real. Maybe this is just an old story on repeat. Then you can practice um, regulating your emotions. And so something that I like to do is I like to tell myself, like, you are safe in this moment. You're safe here. That really calms me down. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I also like to co-regulate. So I like to, by co-regulate, I mean reaching out to someone in your support system and talking Mm -hmm. to them. Um, there's something called heart coherence that most mammals do, but especially like dogs. Dogs are the animals that have the greatest ability for heart, heart coherence. So essentially like when they're close to a human, their, um, what do you call it? Their heart rate can slow mm-hmm. a human's heart rate. So it becomes kind of one in the same. So they calm okay. down together. Um, it's the same thing with with babies. You know, when babies are sad or upset, the first thing they do is they they reach for mom or dad because that's right. their safety. But also, like those those energetic heart coherence waves, they calm down the baby's heart rate as well. And so that's their way of finding safety. And so for me, I have a supportive 
you know, like my, my safety net, my support system, which mainly consists mm-hmm. of my husband. Like he's kind of my person. And so right. um, he's my, my person that I can talk to anything about. I can reach out to when I'm having a moment, he will respond with a lot of compassion, a lot of empathy, and he knows to act calm. I think that a lot of people, you know, at, at first when I was dealing with triggers, I would reach out to people that would excuse my bad behavior or be like, let's just go get a drink, right? Or like, let's like mm-hmm. do this or let's do that. And That's those are the people you, that yeah. would, yeah, those were the, the people that I had really codependent relationships with where Um, Mm -hmm. I would depend on them to lead me away from my triggers. Whereas now I lean on people who help me through the triggers. And I also remind myself too, that those emotions, because again, the nervous system is all about emotions that are going through our body. Those emotions, they come into our body and they're released within 90 seconds. So Mm -hmm. that, like having that knowledge in my head, I'm like, okay, this will pass. This will pass. And then lastly, if, if I have, you know, if all else fails, I practice breath work. Breath work is huge. And a a lot of people use it, uh, in trauma recovery. Um, Mm -hmm. Navy SEALs use it. We use it when we give birth. I mean, the breath is such a powerful force. And when you think about it, our Mm -hmm. breath is actually tied to something called our vagus nerve, which goes up and down our spine. But our vagus nerve is essentially the messaging highway that sends, uh, messages of either being in, you know, parasympathetic or sympathetic response or, you know, fight or flight or rest and recover. And so for instance, at night, when we sleep, our exhale Mm -hmm. is actually twice as long as our inhale. And so by practicing controlled breathing, they also call this poly polyvagal theory or yoga pranayama. If, um, what I do is I do the six, four, one. So essentially I will, I will inhale for four, for four seconds through my nose. It's the, the four, six, one inhale through my nose for four seconds and then exhale for six seconds and then pause for one second and then inhale again for four seconds, exhale for six seconds, pause for one second. It usually takes me about a minute or two. But if I ever do this okay. in group healing sessions, single sessions, or just myself, it usually takes about a minute or two for everyone to kind of switch from whatever mode they're in into rest and recover. And you'll mm-hmm. feel very sleepy, like it's time to go to bed. So it's like you're, you're almost okay. tricking your body into believing that it's like bedtime. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a really good way to regulate your, your nervous systems when emotions come up too. And I really like the way that you worded the question. You didn't say, how do you get over your triggers or how do you make them go away? You said, right. how do you respond to them? And I think that's right. really important to notice because, you know, clients will ask me all the time, like, how do I get over my triggers? Like, when are they going to go away? And my, my response is, we just never. have to learn to like, yeah. And it's, it's not that they'll, they'll never go away, but like our body will always remember those memories. So, you know, they might get less severe over time. Um, they mm-hmm. won't, they won't control you. They won't debilitate you as much, Right. but we can learn to live with them in a more supportive yep. way, you know, where we're not so paralyzed by them. Um, and I really think and that's the trick. Oh, for sure. You know, people ask me all the time, how do you get over your trauma? Well, I'm never going to get over my trauma, but I'm going to learn to live with my trauma in a healthy way. And I think that's super important. Um, You said your husband is your number one person. Has that been a long journey of having him like completely understand you and like how to respond to you and work with you? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, we met back in 2011, started dating at the very beginning of 2012. And I mean, the first four years of our relationship was a very kind of, I mean, of, of course it was wonderful. Um, you know, I look back on all of our years together as wonderful, but those are probably the, the hardest years of our relationship because I was trying to bury myself in him right? And like mm -hmm. run from myself and my own problems and just wrap my whole entire life up into him. And he was the first person who was like, you need to have a life outside of me. Like you need to learn to love yourself more than you love me. And no one mm -hmm. had really ever like said that to me before or had really right. treated me like that before. But I also think that he saw like the better version of me before I saw it myself. You know, and there, right. even now to this day, like I look back and I'll be like, why did you stay with me for all those years? <laughs> you know, like right. I put you through. Oh, I ask my husband that all the time. I'm like, that's exactly it. Because we've been together for 13 years in May. And I'm like, when I was thinking about the other day, I'm like, literally, I don't know how we're still together because I was crazy. I mean, I was 17. I had just gotten out of rehab when I met him. And I mm -hmm. just turned 30. So like he saw me in my darkest of the darkest crazy. And so, yep. yeah, I'm with you. I'm kind of like, I don't know how you're here, but thank God you are. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he's Christian. He's a believer. And for him, he said, you know, I just think that, you know, he, he prayed a lot for me and mm -hmm. he prayed a lot about our relationship. And he just said, I just, you know, God always told me to just stick it out. And I'm really glad that he did. He, yeah, he's a, he's a very patient and loving person. But I think that, you know, in many ways, it was interesting too, because around the time when we first started dating, again, I was all wrapped up in a lot of very codependent friendships, you know, like very toxic mm -hmm. friendships and people that, again, enabled my bad behavior. And so as he and I started spending more time together, I saw that I was becoming a better person. And those friends started to get resentful and they would say things like he's controlling. And I'm like, no, it actually has nothing to do with him. He just sees the better half of me. And like, I kind of want to be that person. Yeah. You know? And so comes out with him around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so we've been together. I, I don't know. I can't do math. Eight, nine years, something like that. But <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. And I, I think amazing. it's, it's good that he was there in, in the hard times, you know, and not, that's not to say yep. that we're not going to have more hard times, but I just think that a lot of it comes with compassion and communication too. Like we don't go to bed mad at each other. We really try hard not to do that. There is nothing ever left unsaid between us. You know, if there's something mm -hmm. going on, we kind of automatically just say it in a very respectful way. And I think being overly communicative has been really helpful and beneficial, not just for our relationship, but also for my healing, you know, like setting boundaries, right. telling him what, how this makes me feel, how that makes me feel. Um, and, you know, if, if you're scared to communicate with your partner because of their response, then uh, maybe, that's a problem. you know, yeah, maybe, maybe that's something to, yeah. to, to look at. But if the person really loves and cares about you, and recognizes that this is something that is a part of your life and it's going to be a part of your life, then they're going to want to have those conversations because ultimately right. they're going to see that the, the, the better you that you can be, then the, the better relationship that you guys can have. You know, it, it, it yeah. affects everything. No, absolutely. I think that's a lot of what we've had to learn too. You know, like I said, we've been together a long time and we're Christian mm -hmm. and we've had to definitely pray together and have to have those moments together. And I think that's a huge part of getting through your healing process and continuing to go through it when you have a really good partner and supportive person by your side, whether it's, right. you know, you're married to them or if it's a, you know, best friend. I think that that's a huge thing to help people get through long-term trauma is 
to mm-hmm. have somebody who fully understands it. So I think that's great. Yes. But seriously, Brittany, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to tell us your incredible story. And you really are an amazing person. And I love just like watching you and listening to your lives and your advice. And, you know, even though we do very similar things, I still mm-hmm. like definitely look up to you in a lot of ways. And so thank you for taking the time to sit here with me today. I really appreciate oh, it. So you are so, so welcome. And I'm just, I'm glad that we finally connected. I'm hoping this yes. is just the first of many ways that we can con- continue to connect. I you and I have very, very similar passions. And so um, I'm just really glad, you know, that you're allowing me to share my my voice and my message with your community and I look forward to more for sure we will definitely do some more stuff together and stay in touch you guys can find her Instagram at Brittany Piper and that has her link to her healing stuff that she does all her healing therapies that she does um her coaching courses and everything so again that's Brittany Piper on Instagram and Brittany anything else that you any other links or anything that you have so you can go to uh, just BrittanyPiper.com, B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y. It's not like Britney okay. Spears, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. Uh, just, yeah, just, just BrittanyPiper.com. And then, yeah, just come follow me on Instagram. I'm very open okay. and very active on social media about all the real stuff in life. So come. Yes. And, and we're out of this quarantine. She does some amazing speaking events too. And that is my goal is to go to one one day. So um, keep an eye out for those. That. But all right, Brittany. Well, I hope you have an amazing day and thank you so much again. You guys make sure you follow at Candle in a Dark Room and we will talk to you guys next time.